Well, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. When I, when I started uh, preaching through Colossians, I mapped out the, the sermon and sermon series and, and had planned to just cover this uh, whole section in, in one sermon. But as I've, um, as I've spent more time in the book, we, uh, what we ended up doing there, what I've ended up doing is a series of three sermons on three verses, 15, 16, and the next week, um, 17. Last, last week or two weeks ago when, we were, when I last taught here, um, the command was, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then this week, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And next week, it's whatever you do in word or deed. That question of word and deed and how those things go together in the life of uh, a Christian, in the life of the church, is a, is a pressing cultural question around us in the church and outside of the church. What should we say? What should we do? Um, should we have to say anything? So we'll look at that next week and just zero in this week on verse 16. Let me read it here together. Or let me read it to you here now and then we'll, we'll pray. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, will you open our hearts to hear and believe and our our minds to understand things that are outside of our understanding, those things that you have revealed to us by the power of your word and your life. Will you redirect our lives and give us strength to do the things you have called us to do, we ask in your powerful name. Amen. A friend of mine is about a generation older than me. He has kids my age. I remember 20 years ago, a conversation with him and and his wife, who's also a friend of mine, as his mother-in-law, her mother, moved into the house. I had known them for a few years prior, and then uh, when they moved in, he lived a couple hours away, and so I didn't see him on a regular basis. But I remember distinctly when she moved in, I rarely interacted with her. She stayed in her bedroom most of the time. We would be doing other things. But it made a profound impact when she moved in on just the course of their life. They still had kids in high school. Some kids were out and grown and even with their own kids. But the change when somebody moved in was was profound. It was significant to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is to say, let Christ move into your house. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of Scripture called the the message, or his paraphrase of Scripture called the message, uses the profound words, let Christ have the run of your house. Everything. And that's exactly what the, the command in this passage, in this verse is, is let the Word of Christ enter into your your, your house, your, your dwelling place, your person, and 
your church, your interaction with others, and let it transform you. I think it was C.S. Lewis who described someone moving in and enjoying the company of another person when they add to the livelihood of dinner conversations or they bring an ability to help with household tasks and chores. But when they start to rearrange the furniture, when they start to ask for certain changes in your routines and in your preferences, different food for dinner, when they start to ask questions of why you do certain things and ponder, cause, cause uh, dissension in the house or, or unrest, not wreaking havoc in a sense, but just probing deeper than what you're comfortable with. Those guests kind of wear out their welcome. Wonder how long, how long till they leave. Wendell Berry describes company like snow in one of his novels. You know, it's really great when it first arrives, but two or three days later, it doesn't look so nice on the ground. What the Apostle Paul is commanding us here, instructing his people to do, is to let Christ's word, the word of Christ, enter into our house and have the full run of the house. That's what the word richly means there. It means fully, completely. Let the word of Christ enter into your house and have the full run of it richly while you're doing two particular things. These are... These are the language of the scripture, or the text of the Greek, saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But it's not just that. While you are doing these things, one, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and two, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness or gratefulness in your hearts to God. So you have three things going on con- uh, concurrently in this, this passage, in particular, you have the first thing, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, concurrently happening while you are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, two questions, two big questions that we want to answer today. The first is, what does this look like to do these three things? What does it look like or how do we do it? That's one question. What does it look like? How do we do it? What is he saying that we should do? And the second question is maybe the, the, the tougher one, but it's why should we do it? What does it look like and why should we do it? And we'll just take and, and follow this down. One, two, three. Let the word of Christ dwell richly. Second, uh, teaching and admonishing one another. And third, singing. So let's start. Let's start with these two questions in mind. What and why. And start with what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, I was mentored in a campus ministry when I first came to the faith called The Navigators. The Navigators began as a military ministry uh, right after World War II when 
uh, a man named Dawson Trotman, who had been in the Navy, started to became a Christian, I think while he was on a ship, and started to mentor other people, other uh, naval officers and enlisted men at the time on the ship and started to, one by one, mentor other people and, uh, and, and, and teach them in the faith. Wonderful uh, model and ministry that then expanded to the college campuses after the war, continues in the military and also uh, in communities today. But one of the things that was at the heart of the navigator ministry, other than uh, pretty rigid discipline, which um, another topic altogether, is is scripture memory, memorizing the word of God. So this passage, this verse, along with a number of others, is one of the key verses that reinforces the need for us to internalize, memorize God's word. And it's a great practice. Uh, 2001, I was uh, working in Ireland uh, for seven months, I mentioned last last week or two weeks ago, and uh, for Easter Sunday that year, I traveled to England and was able to attend All Souls Church in London, which was pastored by the uh, the famous preacher John Stott. Now Stott had since retired, but I was uh, at the morning service, and then I went to the evening service, and to my surprise and delight, John Stott was preaching the evening service on Easter that Sunday. Stott is a a pastor that I greatly admire and has has been influential in so many ways. And as part of his uh, sermon, which was uh, from um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I still remember, he had the congregation recite part of the passage that he was preaching from to practice scripture memory. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to practice scripture memory. If you've never done it before, this is basically how you do it. If you have done it before, you just go through it a number of times. So look with me on the handout. If you don't have a copy of the ESV Bible you're reading from, look with me on the handout passage and say with me just this one verse. Verse 16, ready? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, now look up. Let's see how many of you can do it a little bit. I'll read on, but then we're going to do it a third time. This is exactly what Stop did, by the way, in the service. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One more time, I'll try it without it, without looking. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts toward God, or to God. Good job. Did I miss something? Thankfulness. (laughs) Now go home and do that a few times today. 
and over the week. And if you have never memorized Scripture, you're on your way. First verse. And it will bear fruit. Because like somebody who studied medicine, who needs it when you're out on a hike and away from everybody else, you need to know how to use Scripture. You need to know how to apply the right medicine when you're in a situation and to be prepared for it. The song that we sang earlier, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by a man who received a telegram when his whole family had been sailing, I believe, from England to America, and he received a telegram that simply said, all is lost, meaning that his whole family had perished at sea. He applied Romans 8, I think it's 32, 34, right around there. All things work together for the good of those who know God. Now, grief is a difficult thing, and we won't get into that all today, but do you know when and how to use Scripture when events and difficult things happen in life? To internalize God's Word is to have truth, to have power. Not just to have the right words, not just to have a wisdom of how to respond But the word of God or the word of Christ is more than just words or uh, pithy statements or even right application or wise ways to respond to situations. The word is more than just the, the wisdom. The word is inextricably connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle John can say when he opens his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Using the word, word, or logos in the Greek to describe Jesus himself. If you read that verse, that whole chapter and replace the word word with the name Jesus, it works. The two are inextricably connected. There's no way to separate the two of God's word and the person work of Christ. And you say, how do you do that? Is it the words that Jesus spoke or the red letter words that are in certain translations or copies of the scripture? No, it's more than that. Is it all of the scriptures that speak about Jesus? No, it's more than that because all of the scriptures... All of the scriptures are ultimately pointing to the redemptive work of God that comes in the person of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the promises that God started before Genesis even begins. And so when you come to the fall in Genesis 3 and God promises a seed from Adam and Eve who will come and bring salvation. It's speaking about Jesus. When you see the calling of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this nation emerge from their descendants who are bringing salvation, it's not that nation that brings the salvation. It's not that nation that is the salvation. It is Jesus who comes out of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who is the true 
Israel who brings salvation. When you look at every chapter and every verse of all of the scripture, they all help us to understand how God made all things. The, wor- the, the world was corrupted and fallen through the sin of Adam and Eve and by the influence of certain angels who rejected God and went astray. And how God knowing that beforehand, set in course this plan of salvation that was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you ask, was the word, the printed things on the text or in the Bible, or is the word Jesus himself, the answer is yes. Don't ever feel like there is a dichotomy there. It's a false dichotomy. And to drill a little bit deeper into what that means, the word or logos in the Greek is not just Word like we think of it. When we say word, we think of a word on the page, a single word. Maybe if you were around in the 80s and 90s, you used word in the sense of truth. Remember that? Word. If you're too young, word. In Shakespeare's time, it was verily. Truth. Veritas, the Latin, verily, truth. And if we have that in mind, you start to get a better understanding of what the word logos, when you see the word word in the scriptures, by the way, in the New Testament anyway, it's usually, I think almost entirely, it's, it's the word logos in Greek. And it's more than just a word, it's a truth or an idea or reality. It's some type of concept that has a depth to it generally, and the depth in the word in the New Testament is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The logos, that truth became reality when Jesus took on flesh. And Paul has been, remember this, if you've been with us through the series, Paul has been twice emphasizing that in this person who is flesh and blood, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. God in man. This particular man. He even uses the language of dwelling. God dwelt fully in Jesus Christ. And it's probably not a coincidence that here he's saying, let this truth of Jesus, let this person of Jesus live in you fully. Fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. Let this word, this person of Jesus dwell in you fully. Let him have the run of the house. Now, Let me pause here and go to the second question. That's the what. Let's ask the question why or answer the question why. Why would you let somebody in here? Why would you let them in when, make no mistake about it, Jesus plans to come in and move the furniture and ask for different meals and challenge certain things that you're doing. By the way, the word admonish, looking forward, the word admonish is to, is to correct, is to challenge something. So when we say teaching, 
and admonishing, teaching and correcting Jesus. Why would you want to do this? Well, the first reason we talked about two weeks ago, first part of the sermon, and that is that Jesus brings a peace that we are unable to bring or work ourselves in our humanity and in our fallen state. Jesus brings a peace into our lives and works a peace that all of us have a deep natural desire for. None of us like to fight. We may take some brief enjoyment in it, but none of us like to stay in that state. Or if we do, it is masking some, some kind of uh, uncertainty, fear, that type of thing. We want that peace. And Paul is saying that Jesus brings that peace into your life. The second thing that Jesus does in life is he fills up a void that we have, that we all have in life, a void that is, um, in the words of Chesterton, a God-shaped void, a God-shaped hole in our lives. Maybe you don't realize that hole, but think about the image of a family, like the hymn writer, as well with my soul, or maybe even more specifically, some family who has a child who dies. They have one other child in the house and two parents, and all of a sudden, there is a room that sits empty. And a seat at the dinner table that is always empty. There's something missing in that thing. It's sometimes very obvious and evident that it's missing. And sometimes we fill up our life with activity and, and distractions so that we don't realize that it's missing. But that is what is missing in our lives if we don't have Jesus dwelling fully in our lives. But still, I think some of you are unconvinced of why you should let Jesus into your house in the first place. And more of you are still holding out on some parts of your life that you aren't quite comfortable letting Jesus into. You know, what are those? Those are, those are the, the type of things that are secret rooms fine with Jesus being in the living room, but he can't go in that back room, in the basement. I'm fine Jesus coming in when I want him to come in, but not during the awkward times. During the arguments, the petty disputes. Not in the bedroom. Do you control what outsiders see in your lives? Let me ask that question again because it's really tough. Do you control aggressively what outsiders see in your lives? What are those, what are those things? Now, now, don't hear me wrong. There's a difference between controlling what outsiders see and not revealing certain things that you just don't need to reveal. Said in another way, 
Transparency is the new buzzword in culture. Millennials love transparency. Brene Brown, if you haven't heard of her, promotes transparency. The problem with transparency is sometimes it's just an unloading of my problems onto somebody else so I feel better. The picture is of just vomiting your problems on somebody else and now they can carry the thing so that you don't have to. Now that's not what I'm advocating. That's not what scripture advocates. Scripture advocates us carrying one another's burdens, helping one another, but never that we just dump our load on anyone except, except Jesus who can carry it. And so God calls us to a full transparency before Christ. But I want to take the example of what we control outsiders seeing to probe into the question of what are we trying to think that we hide from God? What are those things that we think we're hiding from God? We just, well, first off, God sees them. But a lot of times that's used to just sort of bring shame into a situation, to load guilt onto a person. What I want to see here, once you, what I want you to see here is that when we say that God sees everything and he's aware of everything, there is an element where that can bring shame, where we feel guilt for certain things. But what Jesus is saying when he comes in to dwell in your house completely is he's coming to bring this peace and resolve the issues that bring us shame. And so if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, those things in your life have lost their power over you. The shame no longer has power over you. The peace of Christ has power over you. The peace of Christ has entered into your life to bring transformation. And part of the way God brings transformation is that he changes our hearts and our desires. He gives us patience to bear with one another and to forgive one another when they sin against each other. He's in it for the long haul to transform lives and hearts and desires as we live and, and know one another more fully. And Jesus is leading the way as a resident in that house. Now, I want to bring up one more reason why you should do this. And this is if you're still not convinced. Or maybe you, you think, well, I know that one of the traits of cults is to say that they want to have control over everything in your life. This sounds a little bit cultish to me here, Pastor. I still remember in high school, one of my teachers going on at some length, helpfully, in describing cults. I thought, you know, cults are kind of going away today. They aren't as big a story. But just two weeks ago, I was talking with a friend who's also a pastor who was talking about having lunch recently with a colleague of his or some type of friend or acquaintance who's a leader in the Moonies. They still exist. The cults are out there. They are still operating. The places where they ask you to give everything to their movement. And I want to give you some tools to discern what a cult is and what the biblical instruction of letting Christ have complete reign in your house is. 
We're moving into this second point. By the way, the second and third points are shorter, so don't fear that we're just now getting to those at this point in the sermon. We're getting into the teaching and admonishing one another. If you turn back with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. The Apostle Paul has been concerned that the people in this town of Colossae, an ancient town in what's modern-day Turkey, who had become Christians, are being influenced by false teachers and led astray. It may have even been one false teacher. The definition of a cult, by the way, one person telling you what you should do and having ultimate power over your life. Now, the Apostle Paul here says, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. In other words, Paul is saying he and the other teachers and leaders of the church are proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Well, the words warning everyone and teaching everyone or warning and teaching are the same words as teaching and admonishing. And one of the things I want you to see here is that in the Christian church, it's not just the leaders who are called to teach and warn the people. In cults, the leaders typically have all the power doing all the teaching and all the warning. But in the church, we're all called to be in some form teachers and warners, correctors of one another. That we have access to God's word, his truth, and that we're active in doing these things. And if you hear one person saying something that sounds like it's out of alignment with everything else you've heard, it is reason to question and bring that up. Now, it doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean the teacher's right. It doesn't mean the one who spoke is right. But part of the healthy functioning of the body of Christ, the church, is that they're teaching and correcting one another. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the leader. I got a little bit out of order in answering the question why in that and getting off onto the cults, but I I want you to see that teaching and admonishing, and I want you to go back to the question of why you should do this, why you should let somebody else in your house and have control, and that it should be Jesus. And the common objection, the common objection in the world, the common objection to those who are fearful of cults is that to give up ultimate control or complete control is irresponsible. It's unwise. We've been given a brain. We should use that brain. No no arguments there. But what I want to suggest to you is that if you think, if you think that you have complete control of your life and you don't need to let anybody in, or you might have control of most of your life, you let Jesus into the church room of your life. I suggest that there are other things in your house right now that have more control over you than you realize. This may be the first time I've ever used a cat in an illustration. I'm not a cat person. 
that you may not realize that you have other things in your life that have control over you, other things in your house that have control on you, but here are a few of the rats that you may not even be aware of that are in your house. Fear. I'm not lovable. People don't love me. What happens tomorrow? I may lose everything. My job isn't secure. My life isn't secure. My relationships feel out of control. That's a rat that is in your walls that you may not even be aware of. Greed. I want what I want. Who's to say I shouldn't go for that thing? I can have my happiness and other people can have theirs if there's some left over. Envy. Man, if I just had what that person has. Finally look like them, could do the things that they do, had the type of people around them that they have. I could go on with this list. Those are rats that are in your walls and the only way to get them out of the house is for Jesus to be the cat in your house. You can smile a little bit, laugh, roll your eyes. But I don't think you're going to forget this one. You've got the rats in your house. You need someone to get rid of the rats, and you can't do it. The poison isn't working. You've tried it. The traps aren't working. You've tried those. You've even called in an exterminator. And they keep coming back. And the only way to get those things out of your house is to let something else come into your house. Why should we do it? Why should we do it? You need Jesus in your house. You need Jesus in your house. Now, this word is active in your life. The word living in your house, fully present in your house. Jesus fully present in your house. Access to all the rooms. Control over the furniture and the meal planning and everything else. While you are doing these two things, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the questions of this passage is, are we talking about Jesus coming into the church as a corporate body, a group? Are we talking about Jesus coming in individually? And the answer again is yes, because if the word of God is active and living in you, and you're engaging with one another in speaking words of truth with wisdom, or translate, not translate a different way, but, but considering a, in love, you're giving and receiving, you're willing to go to some of the hard places in wisdom, knowing when to say certain things, when not to say certain things. That's what wisdom is. If you're doing those things in as individuals, you're blessing the church. And so the word of God, Christ is dwelling in the church. At the same time, he's dwelling in you individually. You can't, again, inextricably connected. You can't have one without the other. 
That's all I'm going to say about that. Teach and correct. Don't just assume that somebody else is going to do these things. If you know the Word of God and you are in relationship with other people in, uh, in the appropriate ways, go deeper. Now enter in. Enter in gently. And if you make a mistake, take note of it. Sometimes you offer correction at the wrong time. Apologize if you do that. But press in. Teach and correct. This is what God calls us to do. And then second, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. There's a lot of debate about these, this list. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's he referring to? Are we talking about... Uh, uh, you know, using the Psalter and then old-fashioned hymns and new songs. Well, the short of the answer is it is not entirely clear of what's going on with these terms. They're not technical terms. They're not used broadly. Don't go to the bank with some kind of interpretation here thinking you've got it all figured out. It's been debated for a long time. But one thing, two things are clear. One so he's talking about singing, expressing with voice and passion our faith. Why do we sing every Sunday? It's because God commands us to express our faith with an animated spirit. Singing or song is poetry put to music. And so it expresses truth, and part of the reason we select the hymns and the songs that we do is because they're full and rich of truth. As compared to a lot of songs, especially more recently, a lot of songs that just sort of string together fairly meaningful spiritual sounding phrases that have no coherent concept or structure to them. You've sung those songs, you know what they are, I'm not even going to quote any of them, right? You just go from one idea to... To the next, and, and they're not at all connected in idea. They make you feel good. It's like singing a rock song at a concert. They make you feel good, but, but have they actually sunk and done the job of bringing the Word of God or the Word of Christ deeper into your life to teach you something that has feeling? There's a time and place to sing songs that repeat and may not go into the depth. And sometimes we probably err on the side of singing too many lyrics. And sometimes it would help. It would help if we sang some songs a few weeks in a row, even. We've done that at times and other times. I'm not critiquing the music selection. David does a great job selecting our music. Well done, David. They tie in with the theme of the, so the sermon. But do you take the songs home? Part of the reason we print a bulletin is so that you can take those home and learn them on your own. Sing them on your own. You have the lyrics right there. Set it on your bedside. Read them. Sing them together as a family. One of our favorite practices as a family is that we have an, a, a hymnal that we sing a hymn every night. And we typically pick one and sing it for the whole month so that everybody knows that hymn by the time the end of the month comes around. Are you singing songs together as a church body? Are you singing out loud? By the way, you guys sing great. It sounds good when we gather together for worship. You sing with a full voice. But are you singing in other settings as well? Now, I will venture into this just briefly what these things mean. The Psalms 
is probably or it could be a reference to the 150 psalms that are recorded to us, written by David and various other authors. And those are rich songs that are the hymn book that God wrote himself. It's recorded there in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. Those are songs that are God's songs. Now, the problem is that our translations are oftentimes difficult to put to music. And so sometimes we do have songs that we sing based on those psalms, but we need more. If any of you are songwriters, go and put the psalms to new music so that we can sing those rich words. Spiritual songs is more difficult. It's literally a songs of the Spirit. Not clear at all what that means. Some people suggest it's more extemporaneous kind of expressions of songs. People gathering together and singing about what they have. Henry, our son, knows how to do that. If that is a spiritual gift and that's what this is speaking of, he will put anything to song and create lyrics. There's a place to write new songs all the time. Engage in that. Hymns may be one of the richest things that I think is connected to a New Testament concept in particular that carries over from the Old Testament. That may be one of the richest practices that we have no idea how to do or frequently do in our current expression of the church. And that is that there are a number of places in the New Testament especially, but also in the Old Testament, where there are just expressions of who God is that are lyrical, like songs. And the early church referred to these as hymns, using the same language. One of those happens in Colossians, starting with verse 115. And it's a song about who Jesus is, And it's this, perhaps the most beautiful expression of who Jesus is in all of Scripture. And it's probably some type of poetical lyric, maybe even put to song, that the early church knew fairly universally. It was familiar to people. Like the Apostles' Creed that we read earlier, people knew it and they could absorb it and think about it. Songs stay with us longer than just memorizing scripture usually. Test that out a little bit. Think about the songs we sang today. Think about the scripture we memorized. We need to practice memorizing scripture. Here's where we're going to close today. We're going to stand up and say Colossians 1, 15 through 20 together as a closing hymn, an expression of who Jesus is that will shape our lives conform our lives, transform our lives. When we are letting the word of Christ dwell in our lives completely, richly, active with that, not just memorizing it for our own sake, but pushing into life and our relationships by teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and expressing those truths in song, deep, heartfelt affection for Christ and for one another, we're growing into maturity. We're acting like the people of Christ. We are letting Christ be 
fully present in us as individuals and as a church. Let's stand and say this hymn together. While we're saying this, why don't the musicians go ahead and come on up here so that we can go right into song without uh, too long of a prayer. And be expressive with this. If you want to put it to music, do it. I don't know anybody who's put this to music, but it needs to be put to music. But be expressive in how you read. Here we are. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Amen. Let's sing.